So we've been going through this book, Ecclesiastes, and we're... In the book of Ecclesiastes, I, I mentioned a, a number of weeks ago that he, uh, Solomon is not an escapist. He's not trying to run away from the hard difficulties of life. In fact, it seems, I, I use that word, face it-ism. I still haven't figured, engageism maybe. But he, he actually wants to confront some of the difficult and harsh realities of life. And particularly in these chapters, chapters 7 and 8, he's taking on some of the harshest and most frustrating difficulties of life. And today actually, um, we're going to look at something probably we've all dealt with. I don't know of any of us who haven't dealt with this frustration of life. And I am entitling this message, When Those Above You Are Idiots. That's what I'm calling this. Like, we all live under authority. We all live under authority, whether they're bosses, whether it's the government, whether it's our parents, uh, whether it's... There's no such thing as a society or even an institution in society without any measure of authority. And I use that phrase when those above you are idiots intentionally. I didn't want to say when those above you are fools, because in the book of Ecclesiastes, a fool seems to be someone who, you know, in the Psalms it says a fool in his heart says there is no God. And so scripturally, sometimes when we use the word fool, we're using it almost in a theological sense. I wanted to use the word idiot today, because that's the word that many of us mutter under our breath when the people who are in authority above us do things that we think they should not do. Ah, oh, and, and alright, listen, I know you guys are looking at me and judging me for using this word. How many of you have ever muttered under your breath, my boss is an idiot? The rest of you are sanctified. Good job. Your parent. How many of you said about your parents? Ah, oh, my parents. They're such idiots. All right. There we go. That's some of you guys. I won't ask about spouses. <laughs> but we all live under... I saw all the wives with knowing smiles right there. We all live under authority. And, and there is no institution in society without a measure of authority. And authority is... Actually, the Bible puts authority in a very unique category. It says that... We're going to look at a passage that says authority is actually instituted by God. It's one of the restraining factors that keeps our world from drifting into chaos. Authority can be a blessing. In fact, it is a blessing. And authority is a blessing when it leads to prosperity and safety. But we've also all experienced the curse of authority. In fact, Solomon puts it this way, kind of in a, in a verse that... Um, Oh, i got to go all the way back here. Somehow we got it to the end. Shoo, there we go. Solomon, kind of, this, this verse in the middle of this chapter is really important. He says, All this have I observed when applying my heart to all that's done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So that's what Solomon is discussing in this chapter. And authority is a blessing when it leads to prosperity and safety, but there will be times when you face the unfortunate reality that the ones to whom you're required to submit make decisions that are foolish, arrogant, harmful, or downright wrong in your eyes. 
And I use that phrase, in your eyes, intentionally, because it's important. Because whether or not the people who are above you are actually idiots, it kind of doesn't matter. Because you all will face periods of time when you are submitting to authority where you think they're acting in an idiotic way. In a harmful way, in an arrogant way. And, and those are the days when you, you... The reason why in your eyes you think that they're idiots is because they're not listening to you. you did you notice you never think the people above you are idiots when they listen to you? It's only when they don't listen to you that you're like, ah, frustrated. That they magically transform into idiots. And what's interesting also is your perspective on power changes when you're the one in power. Like, think about this. Remember being a kid? Like, not a teenager, because teenagers know that their parents don't know anything, right? You teenagers? But remember before you were a teenager, and you thought, my parents, they know everything. Maybe some of you guys are like, no, I never thought that. And what kind of happens is, when you're a kid, you think your parents know everything. When you're a teenager, you think you know your parents know nothing. And then you become a young adult, and you think, oh, maybe my parents did know what they're talking about. And then you become a parent, and you realize, I don't have any clue what's going on. Like, I thought I got a book when I became a parent, where it had all the answers. And guess what? And so when you're in a position of authority, what you really, actually, it's this, they have a name for it even, that's called imposter syndrome. Where you're suddenly the one in authority, and you're like, why am I here? I thought I was supposed to know everything, and I don't. And Solomon's interesting because Solomon is writing around this theme of power when man has power over man to his hurt. And he's writing a chapter or half a chapter around this theme of authority and what to do when your boss is an idiot. And Solomon is the boss. Solomon is the king. And he's not just like a boss of a company. And this is not a democracy. He is the king. He has absolute power. Although, But in the book of Ecclesiastes, what we've already come face to face and encountered with so much already is that though Solomon may be the king and though he may, not, though he may have absolute power, he does not have absolute wisdom. He does not have absolute righteousness. And, and neither do you. And neither do I. And neither does your boss. Neither do your parents. And so power without wisdom, this is the vexation. Power without wisdom, this is what causes us the frustration in this breath of life. We have to, when we come to chapter 8, and we hear what Solomon has to say about power, we can't leave behind what he just spoke about at the end of chapter 7. That was two weeks ago, so if you weren't here, just to remind you, in the second half of chapter 7, Solomon spoke about human depravity. And Solomon spoke, and he argued that none of us, not there's not one person who is absolutely righteous or absolutely wise. He finished chapter 7 by saying, God made man upright, and yet we have turned away and sought out many schemes. 
And the second half of chapter 7 is one argument that none of us is absolutely righteous or absolutely wise. This means that, guess what? Your boss is not absolutely righteous or absolutely wise. And you all say, Amen. I already knew that. This means our prime minister is not absolutely righteous or absolutely wise. It means your parents are not absolutely righteous or absolutely wise. It means that you yourself are not absolutely righteous or absolutely wise. And yet all of us find ourselves in these hierarchical relationships of authorities. Listen, we all are in these relationships to authority in which sinful and foolish people work for sinful and foolish people. Every single one of us. And that's part of this hebel, this breath of life, this perplexity that Solomon is engaging with when he's thinking about life. We work for authorities that at times we think are idiots or doing idiotic things. Now Solomon was the king, and in this chapter, he's speaking as if he's speaking to his advisors who will come in and advise him. And he actually is giving advice of what to do, advisor, when you think I'm wrong. I'm the king, you're my advisor, I'm going to be, the buck is going to stop with me, I'm going to make the decision. Here's what to do when you think I'm an idiot. That's how Solomon's project, uh, presenting this. And he, he had no shortage of people who had come into his presence now you have to understand in the context of this book he's already talked about there's no one absolutely absolutely wise there's no one who's wise in their own eyes and yet he had no shortage of advisors wise men coming in advising him on how to do his job and how to run his, rise his kingdom and he says he opens up this chapter speaking about man having power over man to their hurt saying who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed Solomon could see when his wise men came in thinking that they had the answer Solomon could see their faces beaming with wisdom and then he would crush them by not doing what he says he's too wise for the wise and so he knows that at the end of the day as king, as the one in authority he's going to be the one who has to make the difficult decisions whether his advisors were wise or foolish it's going to come down to him to make the decision and what are you going to do when you disagree with the king so Solomon gives so, so this is in the, t- in the portion of Ecclesiastes where Solomon is giving us really wise advice how to deal with it the fact that when the people above us are doing and making decisions we don't agree with so he says first he says first respect the authority of the fools above you sorry I said I wasn't using fools when I wrote my powerpoint made the mistake didn't want to push it too hard on the idiots thing but respect the authority of the fools above you he says in Ecclesiastes 2 I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him be not hasty to go from his presence don't take your stand in the evil cause for he does whatever he pleases for the word of the king is supreme and who may say to him what are you doing Solomon doesn't say keep the king's command because he's always right Solomon doesn't say keep the king's command because he's so wise 
He says, keep the king's command because he's the king. And as such has been set in a place over you by God. The second half of verse 2 tells us that the reason that we are to keep the king's command is because of the oath of God. Now, it's an interesting phrase in Hebrew. The oath of God could mean two different things. One could mean the oath of God, meaning God's oath to put authorities in place uh, for the keeping of order. That, That God within himself took it upon himself to set up rulers and authorities to execute justice and to restrain chaos as it says in uh, for example Romans 13 Romans 13 let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad would you have no fear of the one who is in authority then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So it's likely that's what Solomon is speaking of. The idea that God has set, God has set these authorities over us for a reason, for the ability to execute justice and to restrain chaos. It could also be when Solomon speaking about this oath that he's speaking about the our oath to those who we pledge allegiance to and put as we're put into these positions of submission to authority both understandings could be right and Solomon's wise advice he gives will speak into both and every one of us have people in positions of authority above us that are set over us by God's providential arrangement and who, to whom we all pledge a measure of our submission. So Solomon's speaking about a kingdom. It doesn't need to be a king in a kingdom. Imagine if you have five roommates and at the beginning of the or so you decide we're going to vote democratically on everything. We're going to vote democratically on uh, whether or not we should have quiet hours at 11 p.m. I don't know. And let's say you democratically, there's five of you, there's no king, but you decide, should we have a vote? Should we have quiet hours institute 11 p.m.? And you vote three to two that yes, quiet hours will be observed in our, room, in our flat at 11 p.m. Well, there's no king among you. You've submitted yourself to that authority. And if you violate it, it's as if you violated the word of a king. You have violated that authority that you have committed yourself to. And Solomon is a king. And I want you to understand one of these big ideas that I got from this book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon has a realistic view of the world and a realistic view of his heart. So Solomon knows that there will be times when he makes decisions that his advisors or that his citizens will think are wrong. So what do we do in those cases? The first thing he says is, show no disrespect. This idea of don't be hasty to go out from his presence. Now in the ancient world and even in the Bible you see there's a great deal of caution taken when someone would approach or take leave of the king. Right? There's, there's a way of doing this. Consider the book of Esther, for example. The, the book of Esther is an interesting book to read. I just read it last night in relation to this text. But Esther was very cautious in how she approached the king and she knew that how she approached the king and how she took leave of the king uh, will, will, will give her um, you know, possibly the honor of being able to stand in his presence and make her request. 
And so she's very careful of how she approaches and how she takes leave of the king. If a person is hastily walking out on the king in anger, such a public sign of insubordination would have to be dealt with. The king's like, I can't, if you, if I make a pronouncement and you rush off in a huff publicly, I have to do something about it. That doesn't help. I mean, imagine what your boss would do if you're in a board meeting and somebody a decision is made and you take your briefcase and you throw it off the table and you say, come on, and you walk out. How's your boss going to deal with you? So, the first thing Solomon is saying is, even if you disagree with me and you think I'm an idiot, don't let your anger boil over and take your leave respectfully. The second thing he says is, plot no defiant stand. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, he says. The way we might say this in modern language is, choose your battles very carefully. Solomon's just giving us wise advice here. Listen, if you're my advisor and I'm the king and I say so, and I make a decision you disagree with, number one, don't be respectful and, and be careful how you leave. Number two, listen, better choose your battles very carefully. Don't take your stand in the evil cause. If you're going to take a stand against the decision that I've made as a king, number one, you, you better understand that it's a worthy cause because any authority above you is going to see it as an evil cause. So it better be a hill that you better be willing to die on. And number two, you better be sure that there's a way that you can win. I mean, that's the thing. If we're always looking for hills to die on, guess what? You're not going to live very long. So plot no defiant stand. And Solomon is giving, for the word of the king is supreme, and who can say to him, what are you doing? Solomon is giving very practical advice to those who work for him who think he's an idiot. If they want to be of any use to him in any service to the kingdom in the future, they can't just fly off the handle whenever their wisdom is not listened to. So what does Solomon advise them to do? Demonstrate their wisdom through their good work and discerning work. He says, Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way, or a time and a manner, for everything. Although man's trouble, another translation, man's burden lies heavy on him. So Solomon writes, he says, listen, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. In, in, in other words, what he's saying to his advisors is, look, you're not going to get in trouble for listening to me when I'm the king and I've made this decision. But if you're so wise, if you're so wise, you can follow the command of the king while seeking to apply the command in a proper and in a just manner. That's what Solomon is saying. He's saying, show me your wisdom by taking this command you disagree with and, 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 and applying your wisdom to, to, to carry out this command in a proper and a just way. So that's the difficult thing. It is very easy to be critical of your boss and to be critical of your authority above you and say, they're just an idiot. What actually takes wisdom is to, within that relationship of submission, act in such a matter that demonstrates justice and propriety. Like, that is what takes wisdom to do. 
Solomon says, yeah, I understand my idiotic commands might be a burden weighing you down. <laughs> a man's burden, his trouble may lie heavy on you, but if you're so wise, you'll figure out a way. Now, I have to say this, and it has to be noted. Listen, we're not talking about times where the authorities above you would tell you to do something immoral or unethical. We're not talking about an authority asking you to do something illegal or immoral. We're talking about a time where where they're just not following your wisdom. Where they're, where they're making decisions that you do not agree with. That's what we're talking about. Not immoral or unethical things. And obviously in the New Testament, it, it becomes clear even, even in, this, in, in this chapter. By verse 12 he says, the one who fears God will come out from this. Okay, so, so we understand that there is an authority above our boss. There's an authority above our prime minister. There's authority above the authority above us. And it is to him whom we fear. Right? And then this comes out very clearly, for example, in the New Testament in Acts chapter 4. Where Acts chapter 4, they're, they're, they're proclaiming the name of Jesus and the authorities of the temple tell them, you can no longer preach this name. And the answer of Peter and John say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be judged, for we can't help but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. This, this is an idea of... Um, of civil disobedience civil disobedience when the idea that the law that we're required to follow would be and go against or direct us against God's law uh, Augustine taught, I think it was Augustine who wrote about civil disobedience saying an unjust law is no just is no law at all right, so there is a time if, you're, if the authorities above you are asking you to do something illegal or immoral right? That, that's not what we're talking about here but I, I, I'll ask you, all you people who, all you guys who raised your hand before saying, have you ever been frustrated with your boss for being an idiot? Were you thinking of those moments where he was asking you to do something unjust or immoral, or were you thinking of those times where he just did something you didn't agree with? It's generally the second. And that's what we're talking about today. And so, yeah, if... Pray. Like, we're Christians, right? When the authorities above us are doing things we do not agree with, or that go against where our wisdom would take us, pray. Pray that God may show you how you can honor and respect the authorities above you, how you can carry out their commands, but doing so in a wise manner that preserves justice, and try to do what is right. That's what Solomon is counseling. So, here's the problem. And this is where Solomon gets very honest. When he's talking about situations where man has power over another man to his hurt. And Solomon will say, here is the ultimate problem with this whole thing. The problem is we are all fools. And there's three ways in which we're all fools. We're all idiots, in that sense. Is that we are very limited and constrained in our understanding in our, and, and in the way in which we live. We're, we're very constrained. First, he says, no one knows the future. Verse 7. He doesn't know what is to be, and who can tell him how it will be? Now, there's ambiguity in this text. There's ambiguity in the way that Solomon writes this. When it says, he doesn't know, we don't know who he is. 
this. It's, it's unclear in the text. Is he talking about your boss doesn't know the future? Or he's talking about the one who's trying to understand how to apply the boss's command doesn't know the future. And I think that ambiguity is intentional. The issue is in every situation where, where someone has a, a position of authority over others, no, none of us know. Neither your boss nor you know the future. You might think you have a great plan. You have a, you've been endowed with this great wisdom of what you should do. And guess what? You don't know. You don't know what's going to come. He says, secondly, no one can control everything. No one, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. The two things he says you don't have control over. You do not have control over other, others' free moral choices. So you come up with this great scheme, and the problem with your great scheme is that other people mess it up. Because you cannot control and you cannot foretell what other people are going to do. So guess what? Your boss might be wrong. You might be wrong. You don't know because you don't know how other people are going to react and respond. He says we can't control the day of our death. That there may come calamity. You may have a great plan that you're carrying out or that you've told your boss, hey, we got to carry this out. And you do not know when the day of calamity will come. You don't know the future. You don't have the power. You don't have the power in your planning to take all these things into account. And the third thing he says is that no one is free from sinful inclinations. He says, just as a soldier is bound to his duty... Sorry, he says, there's no discharge from war, nor where, nor where wickedness delivered those who are given to it. And he puts those two things together. Like, there's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. He's actually making one statement. And he's saying, just as a soldier does not have the ability to remove himself from the battle, neither do we as human beings have the ability to remove ourselves from our sinful inclinations. We cannot, we, we're scripted to these things. And we, we, cannot, we cannot just take a leave of absence from our sinful inclinations and motivations. We can't do it. And so do you know your motives? Do you know the inclinations of your heart perfectly? And so you come up with this great plan, this wise plan, right? You don't know the future. You don't know the power, right, to control everything. And you can't even get away from the sinful inclinations of your heart. Neither can your boss. This gives us a bit of humility. It gives us a great bit of humility. Whether we're in the position of authority or whether we're in the position of submission. This is the humility that the, the scripture would teach us about our limitations as human beings living in this breath of life. We don't know the future, we can't control everything, and we can't get a leave of absence from the inclinations of our heart. I, I hope this, number one, this, spoke to, this speaks to me. It, spoke to, it speaks to me when I think my plans are so great and when I think my boss is an idiot for not following them out, it speaks humility to me, and it actually speaks grace that I might have with those who are in positions of authority above me. That I might have grace with them. 
that they're trying to do what they're able to do, given these three factors, that they don't know the future, they don't control everything, and no one is free from their own sinful inclinations. This is what I'm talking about when I say Ecclesiastes actually directs us to face head-on with the perplexities of life and not to deny them. And the more that we deny these realities, the more that we deny, the more that we deny and and we believe that we can know the future, and the more that, that we believe that we can control others, and the more that we believe that we can escape the sinful inclinations of our heart, that is when we are giving ourselves over to the tyranny of our heart. Uh, I love this. Uh, a friend of mine, I was talking to a pastor this week about this text. And he said he has a test, an idiot test. And his idiot, idiot test is he says, I live my life and I, and I count how many idiots I run into. And that test tells me how far away I am from God. If I'm walking through my daily life going, idiot, 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 that tells me something more about my heart than it does about their action. What's Solomon's conclusion? Solomon's conclusion to us in this is that we are to fear God and that he'll deal with those guys later. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God. Because they fear before Him. It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. And here Solomon's speaking of, what if your boss is truly wicked? It's not just your boss. What if those who are in positions of authority are, are not just, they're not just going along with your wisdom. You're not just thinking, oh man, I wish you would have listened to my plan. He says, what if your boss is a truly, truly wicked man? What, what, if, they're, what if they actually do have wicked inclinations, wicked intent? What, what, what Solomon is saying is, listen, I want you to know God will deal with them. He talks about this wicked man who passed away. During this wicked man's life, he was in a position of authority, and because he's in a position of authority, everybody flattered him. Right? Everyone regarded, oh, look at this man, he's so great, they gave honor to him while he was alive. And what happened was, because his wickedness was not dealt with in the present, he went on and increased his wickedness. That's one of the problems with these hierarchical structures. Like the people who are in authority, people speak up to them and don't, they're not taken to task for their wicked decisions. And, and so they increase, he talks about, they've increased in wickedness. Because the sentence of, against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children man is fully set to do evil. And Solomon's final conclusion for that case is that this man, for the the case in which a man rules over another man to his hurts, Solomon's final answer is that there is an authority above that authority, and to him we must fear. That we will ultimately, ultimately you do not answer to 
your boss, you do not answer to your parent, you do not answer to your spouse, you do not answer to your advisor in school, your professor. Ultimately, you answer to God. Ultimately, they answer to God. This is not to escape, this is, this is not escapism. Right, this whole book has not been about that. It's about facing the reality that injustice happens in this world and that wickedness happens in this world. And our hope is not that the authorities above us magically become righteous and wise. Our understanding is that at times we will have to submit to authorities we think are foolish. But our ultimate authority that we are to submit to is God. Though a sinner, verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. They respect and honor Him as the judge to whom they must stand before. Our, our only hope in the Habel, in the breath of life, right? We, we've talked this whole book of Ecclesiastes that the, this, this breath is fleeting. Our only hope in the Habel of life is justice in the next. Now, now we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for an, an execution of justice here and now. We pray for the authorities and those who are above us that they might actually follow the command of God and rule in righteousness and justice. But we understand that until kingdom comes, we will be put under authorities that sometimes make foolish decisions and do foolish things. Yet God has appointed a time of judgment during which every human being, those of high position and low, will stand before the supreme authority of the universe and give account of our deeds. Now the reality of the gospel is that this judge is also a loving father. That this judge has sent his son into this world with a ministry and a mission of reconciliation. That he has come and he has dwelt and lived among us. That that he might live a, a truly righteous, just and wise life. That we might see Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, the fullness of the character of God. And that we may marvel at him. That was that was that was the uh, that was the the most common response to seeing Jesus Christ in Scripture is, and they marveled at him that he lived in such a different way that they could see righteousness and justice in his actions, on his lips, combined with compassion and mercy, and that he lived a full life under, in submission to his Father in heaven, fearing God. He lived a life that none of us lived, and he died the death in our place. Rising from the dead, he's offering forgiveness of sins to all who turn to him. And that is the work of God that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That is the work of God that we are saved by Him not because of what we have done, not because of our righteousness, not because of our wisdom, but because of His work. We're saved by Him not not because of our righteousness, but then He has saved us as Christians to good works that we might live before Him in humility. 
and seeking to bless those around us. And so that is our hope. That your, your boss is not your hope. I want to, I want to just... <laughs> your boss is not your hope. The people who are in authority over you are not your hope. The one who is King of Kings, Lord of Lord, authority of authorities, He is our hope in our salvation. Until that day, I pray He gives us the wisdom... <laughs> to work in righteous, proper ways under those who are of authority over us.